Hi, my name is Sam Williams, and welcome to episode number 59 of my 60 Music Podcast, Millennial Lurback Machine. Hello, so first of all, I'd like to welcome all of you to episode number 59 of the 60 Music Podcast, Millennial Throwback Machine. I'm Sam Williams, and for those of you who are just now discovering this podcast, either on the Apple Podcast app, or on Stitcher, or on iHeartRadio, or on Google Play Music, or on Spotify, and you're wondering, so what the heck is this? So I'm just going to give you a brief description of what this show is all about. Okay, so I'm Sam Williams, and I'm a 23-year-old songwriter slash producer, but I'm also a huge 60 music fan slash expert slash nerd. And each week of this podcast, I take one song by one artist from the 60s and split the show into two parts. First part of the show, I talk about my opinion on the song and why I think it's so good, or why I think it sucks, then do my own personal analysis on the arrangement of the song, which will include the chords, melody, and lyrics. And the second part of the show, I dig deep into the history behind the track. In that part of the show, I talk about who wrote the song, who produced it, which studio the song was recorded at, who are the musicians on the track, um, where it was recorded, uh, the city that the label that the song was released was based in, and uh, the Billboard Hot 100 uh, peak position number that it made up on the charts at the time, and the year month it was released. All that is in the second part of the show. Now, before we move on this week's episode of the podcast, I want to give you guys a really, really cool announcement. Now, I'm not going to be posting about this on social media, so it's just going to be for you guys who listen to my podcast every week. Um, now, the cool thing that's coming up with this podcast is that um, we're I'm approaching 60 episodes for the show, and next week's episode is going to be episode number 60. So, in celebration for that, I'm going to do another interview. Now, I am very, very excited for the next person I'm going to be interviewing. It's going to be different from the last person I talked to because the uh, last person I talked to was more of an R&B soul guy, you know, doing, you know, Motown and stuff that more the African-American guys were doing. Well, the next episode of my podcast, I'm going to be talking to someone who is deeply involved in the British invasion. And the cool thing about this guy is that he is one of the last surviving producers of the British invasion and he has worked with two very notable bands that came out of the British Invasion. One of them didn't really become huge until the later part of the 60s, but one of them also were huge in the mid-60s. And I'm talking about none other than Shel Tommy. And Shel Tommy, who is still alive today and still working producer to this day, produced The Kinks, The Who, and Chad and Jeremy and the Easy Beats, and he also did The Bachelors too. So in our inter- in my interview with him, I'm going to be talking with him all about, uh, you know, his background and how he got started in Los Angeles and how he wound up you know, in the UK, and how he just became one of the first American producers to kind of cross the pond and go over to England and you know produce uh, groups for you know that that country, you know, and how he kind of came back to America or how he brought that music kind of back into the States and how he was able to have huge success with that. Um, I'm going to be talking all about that in the next interview I'm going to be doing with him, which will be next week. So uh, that'll be really, really cool. So keep an eye out for that. Um, as usual, I'll post links to the songs that he's produced in the description of this episode of this podcast. It's going to be cool because I've actually never talked to like a producer 
Um, cause I've talked to songwriters and singers and different artists, but not like a producer, which is going to be really, really cool. So, uh, keep an eye on for that. And, uh, yeah, so I'm definitely looking forward to that, which will be next week's episode. But moving on, let's get started in this week's song, shall we? All right. So as I promised with you guys, uh, last week, I said I would be doing an early 60s song, uh, for this podcast. And that's what I'm going to be doing this week. So, um, the song I'm going to be doing this week, uh, it's kind of a, how do I describe it? It's just so frantic with energy that it's just completely all over the place. And it's a song that is so upbeat and danceable, but it's just, I wouldn't necessarily call it a dance record, even though it's very catching up tempo, but it's also one of those songs that despite its fast tempo, its lyrics are not disposable meaningless fluff unlike a lot of fast dance songs from this era and but are actually describing a situation that many of us still go through today and the subject the song tackles is actually quite timeless and uh it's something that a lot of people still go through today i'm sure you probably experienced one of these um things yourself in your life so far the song was originally released in february of 1961 it's by an artist named bobby lewis it's other than tossing and turning. Baby, baby, you did something to me. I couldn't sleep at all last night. Holy mackerel, dang, that song is fire as fuck. I mean, wow. It just comes in like a like a like a big wall of bricks and just hits you, man. It really does pack a punch and it's a super strong song. And in this episode of this podcast, we're gonna get into what makes this song so good musically and lyrically. And we'll talk about the history behind this song too, because it's all in one episode. But first let's talk about the song's music first. Okay, so what's so cool about this particular song is just the frantic energy that this track has. I mean, everything from the guitar licks to the verses to the stop and start rhythm section and the bridges to lead singers larger than life lead vocals. I mean, this record is just all over the place with tons of things going on with the song's arrangement. And when I listen to it, the really other really cool thing about this song is that it seems like everything happening in this track is all being done in real time, which is pretty incredible if you think about it. But first, let's talk about exactly what I mean when I say that everything in this song is happening in real and being done in real time. Okay, so what I mean by that is that nowadays when you listen to songs, right, you're thinking, okay, so they obviously, you know, they they tracked everything separately and they mixed it all within a matter of months or days and they just, you know, they did everything piece by piece and they put it all together, you know, and it was done just like that. Well, so unlike today, what happened in the early 60s is that when you listen to a lot of songs from that era, regardless of just how picture perfect a lot of those songs are, what you're hearing is that you pretty much heard all the songs you heard on Top 40 Radio at the time were recorded live. Now, what does that mean specifically? Well, imagine going to a concert, right? 
And when you go to a concert, you notice that everything is happening all at the same time in real time with nothing being played by themselves at different times. Well, most of the great hit songs from the early 60s were recorded just like live concerts, except without anybody in the audience except for the song's producer and engineer in the booth. So really, if you think about it, when you listen to these songs, you're almost hearing like a live performance with everybody playing their parts at the same time with no overdubs. It's just like going to a concert, except you're actually hearing a concert, you know, which is pretty cool if you think about it. So if one person made a mistake, you know, basically what that means is that if one person made a mistake, you know, since it was all being recorded live, the whole band will have to start all over again from the top. Nowadays, we rarely record music like this, you know, because it's just so convenient to be able to just track everything and just do it in chunks and do it piece by piece and instrument by instrument and mix it all, you know, together once uh, it's all kind of, you know, once we got all the tracks. But in this time, when most recording studios didn't have more than three or four tracks per tape machine, the live to mono way of doing it was was the necessary thing to do. So because of this, you can really hear the frantic energy in this track. And sometimes I wonder exactly how many times they ran through the song before they rolled tape, because to me, it sounded like when they ran through it, they maybe did it maybe like one or two times before the engineer hit record, and the band nailed it on the second or third take, which means they basically got a perfect take just two or three times. And a pretty incredible thing to do because the musicians on the session have probably never played together in the same room before and more than likely have never heard this song before in their entire life. So for them to get the song down in just three hours and do it all live in two to three takes is quite amazing. And plus you also got to keep in mind, keep this in mind too, they probably had three more songs they had to record for that session and they also had to get those songs down in two or three takes or less along with the other one with this one tossing and turning for the three hour session and that definitely takes a lot of teamwork and quick sight reading to be able to pull that off and that definitely takes some serious skill to really pull that off that's really missing in today's world because now we have endless tracks to work with and we can really fix imperfect things about track in the mix but back then what what the band played in that moment being captured on tape is ultimately what you had to live with so there was a lot of pressure to get it right the first or second time and you can really hear that when you listen to the song almost 60 years after it was recorded and released and also i love the very unique sax solo after the song's last a section before they go back into the bridge and some of you out there might be deceived into thinking that it's a, the solo is a trumpet solo played on top of a sax, but that is actually not true at all. It's actually two sax players with one guy playing a tenor sax mouthpiece playing on top of regular Barry sax. I know it sounds like a, a trumpet that's using a mute playing on top of a sax, but really it's a tenor sax mouthpiece playing on top of a Barry sax. And it gives a very unique sound from, song, for, from other songs from this era. Also, the song doesn't have the most unique chord progression on the planet, but I think just the overall hectic live energy in the song really makes up for the not-so-interesting chord changes, especially with the band stops and starts in the song's bridge. I mean, it's basically one to four with a five thrown in 
in the section in the in the A sections, and then the bridge it goes to the four chord again. This time coming from the dominant seven chord, then ending on the secondary dominant seven chord, coming back to the five chord in the bridge. And now another cool thing that happens in the bridge in the song is that when the band starts and stops, you'll hear the band cut out for certain lines Bobby sings, and then you'll hear them come in again and then drop out for certain lines. This is a pretty cool arrangement tactic that was very common in the late 50s and early 60s. And just to give you a couple examples of, you know, uh, times when a lot of arrangers did this, um, on Eddie Cochran's Summertime Blues, that's a good example. On Elvis Presley versions of Blue Suede Shoes, they did that as well. And on um, uh, Ricky Nelson's It's Late, they all use that kind of start and stop thing where the band plays and then, you know, every uh, the whole band cuts out where it's just a lead vocal and then they kind of slowly get crawl themselves back in. Um, you know, but in this song, it's just done so suddenly and just so... Um, frantically, they you can just hear that they were just really trying to get the song right because they didn't have a whole lot of time for the recording session. So yeah, you can really hear that how they they were really trying to get the song correct and a, a really good take in before it was time to move on to the next song before the session was over. You can really hear that pressure happening, especially in the rhythm section of the song. But moving on, let's get to the song's lyrics because the song has extremely relatable lyrics, even the song is almost sixty years old. What makes it so relatable? Well, for starters, the song's overall lyrical situation is something everybody still experiences every once in a while, and that is sleep deprivation. And this song takes sleep deprivation to its most literal extent, and talking about things we all do on nights where we get little to no sleep, such as turning our pillows upside down and kicking the blankets off our bed onto the bedroom floor and getting out of bed to turn on our light to go get a midnight snack only to go back to bed to turn off our bedroom light and realize it's the middle of the night and in the song we learn that he goes back to bed and he hears the clock strikes four o'clock and one thing that we do know as to why this guy can't get any sleep is because he has a girl on his mind and honestly the only lyric in the song that is dated is a line where he hears a milkman at the door that lyric recalls back to a time in our history where we used to have our milk delivered to us in glass bottles and silver cartridges. Um, you know, back then you didn't necessarily have to go to the grocery store to get our milk, but now we just go get our milk from the grocery store. You see, people still have sleepless nights all the time. And while they might not always be about our significant others, the behaviors of having sleepless a sleepless night are perfectly described in this song right from the title of the song because who doesn't toss and turn when we can't sleep at night in our beds? So the song's accurate lyrics of having a sleepless night in the song's A sections and in the bridges too. And uh, really, um, I've had my fair share of sleepless nights, but I haven't in a long time, thankfully. But maybe you've had some recently in the past, and if you have, this song is definitely for you because, you know, it it describes it accurately describes having no sleep at nighttime, you know, to the T. So if you, if you, if you, if you have sleep apnea or you've experienced times where you just really couldn't get any sleep, this song is for you. But moving on, let's talk about the history behind this song because first, but first of all, before we do that, let's talk about the early sixties because they still haven't done a true early sixties song 
on this podcast. Let's talk about what was going on in popular music at this time and how it all changed in just a few short years by early 1964. Okay, so at this time, the popular music landscape consisted of almost no bands, with the only bands in the charts at this time were instrumental bands that didn't sing at all. They just played instrumental music with just guitars and drums and bass, and that's it. And almost all so in the the charts at the time consisted of almost all solo artists or female or male groups of singers that, for the most part, didn't write their own songs, didn't play their own instruments. Also, this is when dance craze songs were at the peak of their popularity. So many dance craces that were becoming huge at the time had their own songs to capitalize on them. But really, this was a time when many singers were just didn't write their own songs and they had songwriters and you know producers kind of do that job for them. And it wasn't until the Beatles came around early 64 and people said people... Um, you know, thought of the idea of, you know, you know, there could be this self-contained band that wrote their own songs and played on a record and sang. But even though, to be honest with you, the Beach Boys kind of, you know, actually did that first and actually had hits in America first as a self-contained band before the Beatles. And we'll get into that more in another episode of this podcast. But anyways, at this time, the cities in the U.S. that were dominating the music business were New York, Nashville, and Los Angeles. And each city had their own different and unique sound, but really, in the early 60s, New York was really where it was happening in the music business, and because that's where the music industry headquarters of the country were at at the time, which was in New York City. And in the New York City contained a place where loads of record labels and publishers were based in, and that, bit, that building was known as the Brill Building. And the label that the song was released on Beltone Records is one of the many different labels based in New York in the Brill Building. And the Brill Building was really just, you know, the, the number one place where everything that happened within the music industry was, hap- was most of it was happening in the Brill Building, aside from the country stuff that was being done in Nashville. Really, the pop and rock music industry was in the Brill Building in the early 60s. And while I don't know much about the, this label, Beltone, that I know that they had their own studios and they were a subsidiary of King Records, a label based in Cincinnati, Ohio. And Tossing and Turning was a song written by Richie Adams, the lead singer of a pop group at the time called The Fireflies, and Malo Renee. Malo Renee was the wife of band leader Joe Renee, the arranger and orchestra leader for Tossing and Turning. And he also produced the song as well. The song was originally intended for Jackie Wilson to record, but when the song got into the heads got to the heads of Beltone Records, specifically the label had Luca Hahn, he gave it to Bobby Lewis and they recorded the song in nineteen sixty in Luca Hahn's basement studio because he had a radio station and he had a studio in the basement of his radio station building at the time. And by the way, the studio was definitely Beltone Studios in New York. It was on thirty third Street. Um, the musicians on the Tossing and Turning session included Richie Adams and Eric Gale on guitar, Bob Bushnell on bass, Paul Griffin on piano, and Six Sevens on drums, and King Curtis playing the tenor sax mouthpiece on top of Frank Henward, Haywood Henry's Barry Sax. The Spawnettes are the backing female backing vocal on this session as well. Now, probably the most interesting thing about this song is that it made its chart debut in April of 1961, after being released a few months earlier in February, 
and it eventually got to number one and stayed there for a total seven weeks for most of the summertime of 1961, making it one of the biggest hits of the 60s because, trust me, there weren't very many songs from the 60s that peaked at number one and stayed there for a total of seven weeks. I mean, that's pretty crazy if you think about it. I mean, can you imagine a song staying number one for that long in today's world? I mean, believe me, there are only six songs in the 60s that stayed at, that peaked at number one and stayed there for seven weeks. And Bobby managed to have one more decent-sized follow-up hit after tossing and turning one track mine. And by the way, Bobby was from originally from Detroit, Michigan, but then he moved to New York in the 60s to become like a solo singer before not having any more hits and kind of fading to complete obscurity. But he's still alive today at 94 years old. And by the way, he's completely blind. He can't really see at all. Um, but I'm, And I don't think he really performs anymore. Um, but the but the um, the next hit song that he had after tossing and turning was a song called One Track Mind, which again was an example of a song that was trying to catch on to the flames of tossing and turning. It sounded pretty similar to it. I mean, all I might, I might include that link in the description of this episode, so that way you guys can hear kind of what they're trying to capitalize on, because they're really trying to capitalize on the you know the 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 fire that tossing and turning kind of lit when it became such a huge number one hit. So they tried to write a song that was similar to it, and they did a pretty good job of you know doing a decent sized follow up, it made it to number nine in the Billboard charts. But um, but anyway, so Belltown managed to have one more major hit after Bobby Lewis and tossing and turning. And that was my true story by the Jive Five. And I don't really know much about Belltown other than those are its two biggest hits. But um, Belltown would also lose the Jive Five to United Artists in the mid-60s. But that was the one big hit that they had with that group in 1961. So that concludes episode number 59 of my 60 Music Podcast, Millennial Throwback Machine. I'm Sam Williams, and I hope you learned a lot of really cool, interesting facts about this week's song and artists that you never knew before, and you found out some interesting stuff about uh, this artist from listening to this podcast and sort of the music business in general from listening to this episode of this podcast at this time in the early 60s. And I hope you got turned on to the song Tossing and Turning and you never heard it before, and if you have, uh, please email me at samltwilliaicloud.com or if you're not into email and you're really hip and you're around my age, you can also reach out to me and follow me on Instagram too at iheartoldies and check out more of my original music at samwilliamsmusic.net. Now, I want to give you guys a fair warning about something regarding my website. Um, I was hit with a little bit of a financial uh, rut uh, this month, so... My website might be going down by the end of this month. Well, when that happens, I'll for sure let you guys know. And if it does, what I'm going to do is that I'm going to, instead of posting a link to my website in the description of this episode of this podcast, I'm going to post a link to my SoundCloud in the description of this episode of this podcast. That way you can just guys just listen to my stuff without having to go on to my website. Um, hasn't happened yet, but it might happen pretty soon by the end of this month. So I'll definitely get that taken care of, uh, before that happens. And also, um, other other things that you can check out that are also in the description in this episode of this podcast. Um, the link to this week's song, so that way you can listen to it, um, you know, the full-length version of it. And you can also check out my official Spotify playlist for this podcast as well. There you'll find all the songs I've talked about on the show so far, starting with episode one. 
and there you will find all of the songs um, that I've you know mentioned on the show before I've covered on the show. So um, if you guys want to get an idea for the kind of songs I talk about on the show, then you can definitely do that by listening to that Spotify playlist. And maybe you can suggest to me some songs I haven't covered on the show yet that maybe I should do next for next week's episode after the interview episode. So um, go, please go ahead and check that out. I would really appreciate it if you can do that. And also, another thing that's in the description of this episode of this podcast is the link to my podcast merch store. There you'll find uh, my own little merchandise store on Redbubble, which has all this really cool merch. And the other cool thing that's on there is a super dope logo that I got made for my podcast, which is basically the catchphrase I say at the end of every episode in tie-dye, keep-on, truck, and font with the name of my podcast at the bottom. So that is a really, really cool logo. I really appreciate it if you guys just check that out. And if you decide to purchase something from the store, please let me know by emailing me at samltwillieicloud.com or you know, if if you if you decide to not purchase anything, that's okay. I at least like some feedback on the logo and the prices of each item in the store. I'd really appreciate it if you could just let me know if you decide to check it out. I w- that would be so awesome. And it'll be even more awesome if you decide to purchase something, but you don't necessarily have to do that. And uh, yeah, so um, also, uh, please leave me your if you're listening to the show on the Apple Podcast app. Please leave me your review too, because. The more reviews I get on the show, the more my show gets pushed into the realm of the new and noteworthy section of iTunes for uh, the podcasts uh, that that they fe- that iTunes has. So I really appreciate it if you could do that. Um, you know, I would love it if you could leave me a review and tell me how much you like my show. If you're randomly just checking it out for the first time, and uh, I would really appreciate that. But anyway, so I'm Sam Williams. And thank you for joining me for this week's episode of my podcast, Millennial Throwback Machine. Until next week, please keep things groovy. Bye.